Chapter 4 of A History of American Political Theories by Charles Edward Merriam. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Jeffersonian Democracy No sooner was the new constitution put into actual operation than there began a decided movement away from strong government and toward individual and states' rights. It seemed almost as if the people were alarmed at what they had done and were anxious to neutralize its effect. In addition to this perhaps natural reaction after the violent agitation in favor of a strong government, there was the powerful stimulus given to democracy by the French Revolution, especially in its earlier years. This great event aroused the democratic spirit throughout Europe, and was not without its effect on America. Nor should it be forgotten that just at this time Jefferson returned to his native land, ready to organize and give form to the scattered democratic tendencies. Under these auspices, the new movement rapidly gained strength, and little more than a decade was able to triumph over the Adams-Hamilton party. The most marked characteristic of this movement was the antipathy shown toward everything suggestive of monarchy, hereditary aristocracy, or strongly centralized government. Objection was made, for example, to any exceptional formality in addressing the president, to stamping his likeness on the coinage, to any elaborate ceremony at the seat of government. Opposition was made to the size of the standing army, to the establishment of the United States Bank, to the assumption of the state debts. Particularly was their denunciation of the administration because of its refusal to take up the defense of Republican France against monarchic England. To favor Britain, or even to remain neutral in the contest, it was said, was really equivalent to upholding the British form of government against the free institutions of the revolution. The theory of this movement is represented in such works as Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, which was used as an answer to the writings of Adams, in Tucker's Commentaries on Blackstone, 1803, in Taylor's Inquiry, 1814, and the various writings of Joel Barlow. But by far the most influential of the leaders in this group was Thomas Jefferson, and to a consideration of his doctrines we now turn. No name is more often or more intimately associated with American democracy than that of Thomas Jefferson. During his lifetime, he was the American Democrat par excellence. On his death, he was politically canonized, and his words are still quoted with confidence and received with respect in the consideration of almost all political questions. Brought into prominence as the author of the Declaration of Independence, identified with the growth and triumph of the Republican Party, inaugurated as its first president, Framing its policies and providing the philosophy, Jefferson was undoubtedly the central figure in the early development of American democracy. Though regarded as the great advocate of democracy, Jefferson bequeathed to posterity no systematic treatise on the principles of politics. His Summary View, 1774, and Notes on Virginia, 1782, are the nearest approach to this, and they can scarcely be considered an approximation. Moreover, he was not a great orator, and there is no collection of addresses in which his ideas are embodied. He was, however, a great correspondent, and we have a large collection of his letters written to such persons as Madison, John Adams, Lafayette, Dupont de Nemours, Taylor, Kircheval, Johnston, and others. From this extensive correspondence, in which topics of political theory frequently appear, together with some of his official papers, it is possible to reconstruct the theory of Jefferson, if not in minute detail, at least in general outline. The first important statement of Jefferson's political theory is contained in the Declaration of Independence. Here are eloquently expressed the now familiar doctrines of human equality, of the natural and inalienable rights of man, of the guarantee of these rights as the first cause of government, 
and of the right and duty of revolution when they are subverted. These doctrines, it is perhaps needless to say, were not original with the writer of the Declaration. They were the common property of his time, were on the lips of every patriot orator, and found copious expression in resolutions throughout the colonies. It was later charged that the substance of the Declaration had been hackneyed in Congress for two years before. Jefferson himself was fully conscious that the originality of the statements lay in their form rather than in their content, and his own explanation of his work is excellent. Neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular or previous writings, it was intended to be an expression of the American mind, and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. Jefferson crystallized the common sentiment into a very effective form, but he could not and did not claim for himself the merit of presenting to the world a series of new or hitherto undiscovered truths. That is not to say, however, that the authorship of the Declaration was not a signal distinction, it merely changes the category in which the distinction lay. Inquiring more closely into Jefferson's theory of inalienable rights, we find him protesting against the idea that we surrender any of our natural rights on entering into society. Jefferson argues that these rights are not given up, but, on the contrary, are rendered more secure. He holds that the state should declare and enforce our rights, but should take none of them from us. Reasoning in this way, it is possible, he thinks, to mark out the proper sphere of state activity. Thus, as no man has a natural right to interfere with the rights of others, it is the duty of the law to restrain everyone from such interference. Every man should contribute to the necessities of society, therefore the law should see that he does so. No man has a natural right to judge in his own cause, therefore the law must judge. Thus it appears that one does not lose his natural rights under government, but obtains a better guarantee of them. Government is established, however, by the consent of the governed, or at least a just government is so supported. What, then, is the nature of this consent, and how is it to be made effective amid constantly changing conditions? Jefferson was not satisfied with a contract made once and for all like that of Hobbes, or with a merely hypothetical contract, or even with a presumption of tacit consent from the fact of residence. He looked upon the contract as a necessary foundation for legitimate government, and he considered that the agreement should have historical as well as logical validity. The principle of the social contract must be sacredly preserved in the life of the people, and Jefferson proposed two ways of ensuring this end. First, by revolution. Second, by periodical renewal of the agreement. Revolution, Jefferson did not regard with great horror, if principle were involved in the process. He did not believe in government as something so sacred in nature as to be above human criticism. He did not look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant too sacred to be touched. Government appeared to him as an institution existing for the governed, and if it failed to serve this purpose, then it might be overthrown and another erected on its ruins. So far did he go in this direction that the beneficent elements in government were at times almost lost to view. He declared his dislike of energetic government because it is always oppressive. He was on one occasion doubtful whether the first state of man, without government, as he says, would not be the most desirable if the society were not too large. He thought that republics should not be too severe in their treatment of rebellions, lest the free spirit of the people be suppressed. Rebellion, he argued, is a medicine necessary to the health of government, and its use must not be denied. It is wholesome, though bitter, or using another figure, it clears the air like a thunderstorm. Shays' rebellion in Massachusetts, Jefferson regarded with great composure, even with complacence. The motives of the rebels were good, he thought, though doubtless they were ill-informed on the situation. 
Better, however, that they should take up arms than tamely submit to what they deemed oppressive. For, after all, it is not rebellion that destroys a republic, but the dull lethargy that creeps upon and paralyzes the public spirit. God forbid that we should ever be twenty years without such a rebellion. There have been, he continues, thirteen states, independent for eleven years, and during this time only one rebellion. This amounts to one in one hundred and forty-three years for each state, by no means an excessive number. How is it possible for a country to preserve its liberties if the rulers are not occasionally warned of the existence of a spirit of resistance among their subjects? What signify, he asks, a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. The idea of adherence to the principle of the social contract finds a less violent expression in Jefferson's argument for periodical renewals of the agreement. Rebellion or revolution serves to keep alive the public spirit, but it acts through irregular and illegal channels, and hence is best adapted to countries where the government is tyrannically inclined. For a free state, however, there are other plans that may be followed without passing outside the boundaries of the law. A convention, reconsidering the organic law of the land and submitting the result of its deliberations to the people, really constitutes, he maintains, a renewal of the fundamental agreement. In this way, the consent of the governed may be again invoked and the government re-established on a just foundation. Each generation, such is the argument, has a right to establish its own law. The earth belongs in the suffrage to the living. The dead have neither powers nor rights over it. It follows, then, that no generation of men can pass any law binding for a period longer than the lifetime of that generation, because their law-making power ceases with their existence. If one generation could bind another, the dead and not the living would rule. Since conditions change and men change, there must be opportunity for corresponding change in political institutions, and also for a renewal of the principle of government by consent of the governed. Having established this proposition, Jefferson proceeded to determine the exact period for which a law or a constitution might be considered as an expression of the will of the community. By the use of certain tables of M. de Buffon, he found that in any given society, one half of all those over 21 years of age will have passed away in 18 years and 8 months. Therefore, he reasoned, no society can make any constitution, law, or contract of binding force for any period longer than 19 years. Hence, if the society is to adhere to the principles upon which just government is founded, there should be a revision of fundamental law, or at least an opportunity for revision, every 19 years. This plan was defended by Jefferson as a reasonable and practicable method of maintaining a free government in its integrity. At first blush, said he, it may be rallied as a theoretical speculation, but examination will prove it to be solid and salutary. He urged that the first revenue law enacted by Congress should contain in its preamble a statement of this theory, and that the period for the granting of patents be limited to 19 years, and he manifested much concern at Virginia's failure to adhere to the policy of periodical constitutional revision. Such, then, were the two methods by which the consent of the governed might be made the constant basis of government, by periodical renewal of the contract, or, if this were impossible, by rebellion or revolution. Neither of these methods, however, was novel in political speculation when Jefferson propounded them. The idea of a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles was common to the time and was often expressed in the revolutionary state constitutions. While the plan for a revision of the constitutions was not so radical as the provision actually made in Vermont and Pennsylvania for a council of censors and a septennial constitutional revision. Having considered Jefferson's theory as to the basis of government, it is now in order to examine his position as to the various classes of government. 
What then was his opinion of monarchy? The government of a king Jefferson regarded, at least in the earlier part of his life, with utter abhorrence. Though not the equal of pain in the vigor of his invective against kings, he was but little inferior. He declared that no race of kings has ever presented above one man of common sense in twenty generations. Again, there is not a crowned head in Europe whose talents or merit would entitle him to be elected a vestryman by the people of any parish in America. Writing in 1810, he stated that, to his personal knowledge, Louis the Sixteenth was a fool. And in the same category were included the kings of Spain, Naples, Sardinia, and Denmark, and the Queen of Portugal. While the successor of Frederick the Great he characterized as a mere hog. Moreover, he thought that if there were any efficient hereditary monarchies, their power would decay in the course of a few generations. Jefferson's favorite and perhaps most effective form of attack upon his opponents was to arouse the suspicion that they were at heart monarchists, longing for the restoration of royalty. In later years, however, after the failure of the European revolutions to establish democracy, he was inclined to concede that under certain conditions a monarchy might really be the most desirable form of government. The next point of inquiry is Jefferson's opinion of aristocracy. Judging from his famous utterance, all men are created equal, he is generally regarded as a great champion of human equality. Against this is sometimes urged the fact that the ownership of slaves is hardly in keeping with ideas of universal equality. It should not be forgotten, however, that Jefferson was really opposed to the institution of Negro slavery and more than once went on record against it, as in his Proposition for a Virginia Constitution, 1776 and in the report on the Government for the Western Territory, 1784. Later in life, he was forced to abandon his early hope that slavery would soon cease to flourish in America, yet he still believed in the ultimate extinction of slavery and declared, 1814, that the love of justice and the love of country plead equally for the cause of these people. He said that the hour of emancipation was advancing with the march of time and urged continual effort, softly but steadily. Aside from this point, however, it is easy to show that Jefferson was not at all a believer in the absolute equality of men. In this connection, it is interesting to examine his correspondence with John Adams upon this very question of aristocracy. Adams denounces in set terms the theory of the equality of all men, declares that society is divided into two classes, gentlemen and simple men, and demands the legal recognition of this difference in ability. Jefferson does not deny the existence of an aristocracy among men, but distinguishes between the natural aristocracy and the artificial aristocracy. One is based upon virtue and talent, the other upon wealth and birth. The natural aristocracy appears to him as the most precious gift of nature, and highly useful for the purpose of instructing and governing society. He even goes so far as to say that form of government is the best, which provides the most effectively for a pure selection of these natural aristoi into the offices of government. The artificial aristocracy, based on wealth and birth, is mischievous, even dangerous, and should not receive legal recognition. In reply to Adams' proposition that the aristocracy should be represented in one legislative chamber and the people in the other, he urges that the separation of the pseudo-aristocracy from the genuine should be left to the people themselves. Some mistakes will doubtless be made, but the really good and wise will generally be selected. Jefferson, it may be said, believed in an aristocracy, but only in the sense that the best fitted for governing should rule, and that the selection of the aristoi should be made by popular election rather than on a basis of birth or wealth. He wanted aristocratic rulers democratically chosen. But in this connection, it must be remembered that the democracy of his day was not the democracy of ours. 
As late as 1824, Jefferson estimated that a majority of the freemen in Virginia were excluded from the franchise, and there were many inhabitants who were not even freemen. Having reviewed his ideas on monarchy and aristocracy, it remains to consider Jefferson's doctrine of democracy. What was the theory of Jeffersonian democracy? The doctrines of natural rights and the consent of the governed have already been examined, but more specifically, what was his idea as to the characteristic features of a democratic government? This is not easy to determine, for in the first place his notions were never systematically and not always clearly expressed, and in the second place, there are contradictions between his political theory and his practical politics. The theory of Jefferson, the political scientist, and the practice of Jefferson, the man of affairs, are not always free from inconsistency. An effort will be made here, however, to show as clearly as possible from the scattered sources at command what Jefferson's theory of democracy really was. Jefferson defines a republic as a government by the citizens in mass acting directly and personally according to rules established by the majority. Governments are republican in proportion to the degree of direct action on the part of the citizens, and there are of course many varying degrees. This is, however, only a very general statement and lacks definiteness of outline. One of the best supplementary explanations is that found in Jefferson's first inaugural address. Here are laid down the main principles which should obtain within a democracy. They include, among others, the following propositions, equal and exact justice, jealous care of the right of election by the people, the rule of the majority, the preservation of the guarantees of civil liberty, such as freedom of religion, freedom of the press, the habeas corpus and jury trial, the subordination of the military to the civil authority, and economical administration. In these phrases are summed up his democratic program, and under the, his type of government, they will all be found in operation. Further evidence as to Jefferson's notion of democracy is given by examination of what he once termed the two hooks upon which Republican government depends. These were an educational system and a scheme of local government. Keenly appreciating the necessity of popular intelligence as a basis for a successful popular government, Jefferson was a constant advocate of all measures for the diffusion of knowledge among the masses. If government rests upon public opinion, he said, then our first and foremost care is to see that this opinion is kept right. Opinion that is unenlightened and unsound would be the death of free government. He once said that, if forced to choose between a government without newspapers and newspapers without a government, he would not hesitate to choose the latter alternative, assuming that every man received the papers and were capable of understanding them. Jefferson exerted himself in behalf of educational institutions in his own state, and to his earnest efforts was largely due the establishment of the University of Virginia. The second hook was local government, referring to his experience at the time of the Embargo Act, Jefferson said, I felt the foundations of the government shaken under my feet by the New England townships. He recommended for Virginia a system of local government, modeled quite closely after the New England type, to take the place of the large and lubberly divisions into counties. Wards were to take charge of the elementary schools, to care for the poor and the roads, and to have a system of justices, constables, and police. But the ward was merely one step in the scheme of governmental gradation which Jefferson had in mind. He conceived that liberty should be secured not only by a tripartite division of governmental powers, but also by a further distribution among a series of organizations extending from ward to nation. First should come the elementary republics or wards, then the county republics, then the states, and finally the nation. Governmental power should be delegated by a synthetical process to higher and higher orders of functionaries, so as to trust fewer and fewer powers in proportion as the trustees become more and more oligarchical. Local government would thus be made 
a part of the complicated checks and balance system in the intricacies of which despotism would be entangled and rendered powerless. Another feature into the Jeffersonian program should perhaps receive mention at this point, namely the plea for the subordination of the military to the civil authority. He argued against the large standing army as a likely instrument of oppression. Absolute governments must depend upon force, but a free state, he held, should place its confidence in the goodwill of its citizens. So far as military power is necessary for the purposes of defense, the need should be supplied by a well-disciplined militia. A standing army was associated with monarchical power, and it was therefore a part of the Republican policy to reduce the army and the navy to as low a footing as possible. Under Jefferson, this was the line of conduct followed by the administration. In this way, an alleged monarchical tendency was checked, and at the same time, the expenses of government were reduced, although the Embargo Act involved an exercise of power like that of a consolidated government. The suppression of the military power was undoubtedly one of the features in the Republican plan for governmental regeneration. Indeed, it has been urged that this was the real significance of the transition in 1801, but Jefferson did not present any very elaborate arguments upon the question, and it did not occupy a very prominent place in his political theory. Thus far, the inquiry has extended into Jefferson's definition of a republic and an examination of various features included in the program of such a government, yet all these considerations fail to show what was the real essence of Jeffersonian democracy. They reveal in part his policy, but his policy was never complete either in theory or in actual practice. That which gave life and color to all these measures for democratic reform was the article in the Jeffersonian political creed which must now be considered. The distinctive and characteristic feature of his doctrine is most clearly expressed in his correspondence with John Adams. Here may be seen the real difference that divided these two great leaders, one the advocate of the well-born, the other the apostle of democracy, their opinions characteristic of two great parties and of two great schools of political thought. This difference has already been indicated but may here be better explained and more appropriately emphasized. It has been shown that Adams was anxious for a balanced government of the most complex nature, including as one of its elements a legal recognition of the aristocracy, and that he appeared to doubt and distrust the capacity of the people for any high degree of self-government. Against such a theory, Jefferson maintained that men are naturally divided into two classes, one, those who fear and distrust the people, and two, those who identify themselves with the people, have confidence in them, consider them as the most honest and safe, although not always the most wise, depositories of public interests. In the opinion of the first class, the masses must be held in check by physical and moral force, and can be restrained in no other way. Men are essentially incapable of ruling themselves and must be governed by authorities independent of their will and not subject to their judgment. But the second class, on the other hand, argues... Jefferson placed their trust in popular capacity for self-government, maintaining that man is a rational animal, possessing a natural and innate sense of justice, and that for the preservation of peace and order he does not require restraint from above or outside, but is competent to choose his own rulers and hold them dependent on his will. The same idea as to the two classes of opinions is expressed in the letter to Dupont de Nemours in which Jefferson says, we both love the people, but you love them as infants whom you are afraid to trust without nurses, and I as adults who I freely leave to self-government. The essence, then, of Jefferson's democracy was confidence in the self-governing capacity of the great mass of the people, a belief in the ability of the average man or of average men to select rulers who will conduct the administration in general accord with the interests of society. The divergence of opinion just here made Adams an aristocrat and Jefferson a democrat, 
Not that Adams had no confidence or that Jefferson had all confidence in the people, but the degrees of confidence differed widely. We might say that one looked with suspicion on the people first of all, the other distrusted first the government and after that the people. Both favored a balanced government, but Adams desired primarily to prevent violent action on the part of the people, whereas Jefferson's first aim was to prevent oppression by the government. One reason that the people should be watched, the other that the government should be kept in constant view. Confidence in the people was therefore the distinguishing characteristic in the theory of Jeffersonian democracy. In practice, however, the early democracy was aristocratic in the nature of its rule and continued to be so until the time of Jackson, when the democratic theory found a more complete expression in political institutions. It must further be noted that Jefferson's theory of democracy was by no means so doctrinaire as is often supposed. He did not argue that democracy was equally adapted to all times, places, conditions, and peoples, as some have assumed. Confident of the ultimate triumph of democratic principles, he was not eager for their immediate and universal application. Nothing could be clearer than his statement that the excellence of every government is its adaptation to the state of those who are governed by it. The sage of Monticello was not so blind a devotee of democracy as to believe that civil and political liberty need no firmer basis than a paper constitution. To Lafayette, he said that liberty becomes, with an unprepared people, a tyranny still of the many, the few, or the one. Again, he expressed doubt whether the state of society in Europe can bear a republican form of government, and therefore advised a hereditary chief strictly limited. The cause for the failure of the continental revolutions is discovered in the fact that the mob of the cities, the instrument used for their accomplishment, debased by ignorance, poverty, and vice, could not be restrained to rational action. Discussing American conditions, he comes to the conclusion that the Spanish-American states are not ready for republican institutions, since their experience has disqualified them for the maintenance or even knowledge of their rights. Louisiana is not ready, 1803, for the exercise of complete political liberty and should obtain it only in proportion as we find the people there riper for receiving the first principles of freedom. Jefferson points out that in America, economic conditions favor democracy. Here, everyone owns property or is at least so well situated as to be interested in the maintenance of law and order. It seems then that such men may safely and advantageously reserve to themselves a wholesome control over their public affairs and a degree of freedom which in the hands of the canet of the cities of Europe would be instantly perverted to the demolition and destruction of everything public and private. Elsewhere, he remarks that the Americans will continue to be virtuous and retain their democratic form of government, as long as they remain an agricultural people. But when they get piled upon one another in large cities as in Europe, they will become corrupt as in Europe. In one instance, he even goes so far as to say that the people here would go on as well under an absolute monarch, while our present character remains of order, industry, and love of peace. Jefferson believed fully in democracy and was confident of the ultimate triumph of the system, but he was too keen and careful an observer to think that all people were capable of adopting the American system in his day. This may not have been in harmony with his ideas on natural rights, but as he himself said, theory and practice are not always in accord, and the habits of the governed determine in great degree what is practicable. Some interesting light is thrown on Jefferson's philosophy by noticing upon what systematic political theorists he was most dependent, and which of them in his opinion best expressed the true principles of political science. From the classical writings, Jefferson apparently derived little inspiration, Aristotle he knew, but thought of little value, and Plato's writing he considered as so much worthless jargon. The chief source from which Jefferson drew his inspiration is commonly supposed to have been the philosophers of the 18th century democracy in France. It is often said that his head was turned by French ideas, that he was a Rousseauist, and that the speculative Jefferson was really a Frenchman. 
The extent of the French influence upon Jefferson was, however, far less than is generally supposed. Montesquieu and Rousseau, who might be presumed to have had a large share in determining his views, seem to have affected him very little. Montesquieu he held in no high esteem. I am glad, he says, to hear of anything which reduces that author to his just level, and his predilection for monarchy, and the English monarchy in particular, has done mischief everywhere, and here also to a certain degree. Rousseau is not discussed or recommended for reading by Jefferson, nor do the latter's theories show as much resemblance to Rousseau as to other French writers. Jefferson recommended Condorcet Esquisse d'un tableau historique des progrès de l'esprit humain, and probably obtained from this source's ideas on human improvability. The only French work cited with enthusiasm is that by Destude de Tracy, Commentaire sur l'esprit des lois, of which Jefferson had a translation made into English, 1811, so that it might circulate freely in this country. He referred to Tracy's work as the most precious gift the present age has received, giving the most correct analysis of the principles of government which has yet been offered. Although he did not agree with all of the theories contained in it, notably the doctrine of a plural executive. But this work did not appear until long after the early and more radical period in Jefferson's life was over. The Declaration of Independence antedated it by 35 years, and Tracy himself had been influenced in no small degree by American publicists, as appears from his eulogy of our federal system of government. It is hence impossible to impute the paternity of Jefferson's ideas to this work. Indeed, it is unnecessary to go outside of the English theory of politics to find ample precedent upon which Jefferson might draw. In the English writers, particularly of the 17th century, are found revolutionary and democratic principles of the most decided character, anticipating not only Jefferson, but in large measure Rousseau himself. As I have indicated above, when Jefferson's rivals wished to detract from his fame as author of the Declaration, they could point to the substance of this instrument in the words of Locke. The ideas were the common property of the time, not borrowed from Rousseau or Montesquieu. Jefferson's theory followed a line of thought already marked out during the English Revolution by Milton, Sidney, and Locke, and taken up by colonial thinkers before Rousseau had begun to write. When called upon for advice as to the best political literature, Jefferson recommended Locke and Sidney of the earlier writers, and of the later, Priestley's essay on the first principles of government, Berg's political disquisitions, Chipman's sketches of the principles of government, the Federalist, which he once commended as the best commentary on the principles of government which was ever written, and Tracy's commentaries. Jefferson was also an intimate friend of Thomas Paine, and there are many common points in their theories. In a letter to Paine, he assured him that the Americans are firm and unanimous in their principles of republicanism, and there is no better proof of it than that they love what you write, and read it with delight. The printers use in every newspaper with extracts from your last, just as they did before your first part of the rights of man. On the whole, it appears that, so far as the revolutionary character of his theory was concerned, Jefferson was little in advance, logically, of his predecessors. The difference between Jefferson and Locke, for example, is not so much in fundamental principles as in the development of and deductions from these principles. Jefferson and Locke were both democratic and revolutionary in theory, but Jefferson went farther than Locke in his advocacy of democratization of the government. Between the fundamental constitutions of Locke and the Jeffersonian program, there was a wide difference. Locke's attitude toward the organization of the government was wholly aristocratic, while that of Jefferson was essentially democratic. They agreed in their destructive but not in their constructive program. Both were opposed to absolutism, but Locke feared, while Jefferson favored, the erection of a numerous democracy. In conclusion, what should be said of Jefferson's rank as a political theorist? 
The important service rendered by the sage of Monticello is not the scientific elucidation of theory. The doctrines he advocated had all been discussed and developed long before his time, and he did not improve much on the classic and analysis of Aristotle, the reasoning of Locke, or the brilliant logic of Rousseau. He cannot be classed as one of the great political thinkers. He did not inquire deeply into the nature of the state, its forms of organization, or any of the numerous problems arising out of the complex relations of political association. He did not write systematically at all, and what he did write was notable rather because of its rhetoric than because of its scientific depth or clearness. Tested by the canons of the schools, Jefferson falls far short of the stature of a great political philosopher. What then shall be said of his personality so preeminent in the annals of American democracy? What was the source of his power, and what was the significance of his career? One great cause of his power was the usual sagacity and astuteness that made him a great party leader. With a machine that was ill-organized, if organized at all, and with little patronage, Jefferson's political genius guided the Republicans on to the destruction of their rivals. Another cause was his singular gift for vivid statement of popular ideas. He crystallized the common democratic sentiment, giving it form and power. He was great in his ability to interpret and express popular feeling, and finally he had great confidence in the people. He believed in their capacity for self-government, had confidence in the soundness of their judgment, and was hopeful of the future of democratic institutions. In spite of the many inconsistencies in his conduct, Jefferson stands out as the great apostle of the democratic faith in his day. He appeared as the advocate of the people against the claims of monarchists and aristocrats. He not only defended the people on theoretical grounds, but he was identified with a fairly definite program of democratic reform, a part of which he was successful in carrying out, and much of which was realized later under the Jacksonian democracy. He stood for the extension of the suffrage, periodical revision of the Constitution, religious liberty, subordination of military to civil authority, the maintenance of local governments as a barrier against excessive centralization, and for a certain democratic simplicity in place of the elaborate ceremony of kings and courts. This was the framework of his political system, while the life and spirit of it was faith in the self-governing capacity of the people. What is said of Jefferson may be taken as typical of the school with which his name is connected. He organized the party, furnished its policies and its principles, and for eight years offered a practical illustration of the type of thought for which he stood. When the political theory of Jefferson is stated, that of the Jeffersonian democracy has been outlined. In conclusion on the theory of this epoch, it may be said to have begun with a reaction against democracy and to have closed with the triumph of the popular doctrines. The great work of the reactionary party was the adoption of the Constitution and the establishment of the federal government on a firm basis. Their chief concern was with the maintenance of law and order, and they were interested only secondarily in the guarantee of human rights. This was the secret of their success and the cause of their failure as well. In the accomplishment of their task, they necessarily antagonized some of the democratic doctrines of their time, and certain of the leaders, such as Adams and Hamilton, developed and expressed decidedly aristocratic ideas. Notwithstanding the explanations made at a later date, it is evident that Adams and his school leaned away from the people, or perhaps it would be more accurate and just to say that they favored strong and efficient government, whether popular or not. If they must choose between strong government and popular government, they would stand for an adequate and effective political system. When once the central government was fairly established, the opposition, aided by the movement in France, rapidly gained strength and soon was able to obtain control of the administration. Their return marked the reaction from government to liberty again. Although guilty of much misrepresentation of their opponent's position and many inconsistencies in their conduct, the Jeffersonian Democrats had greater confidence in the masses and were ready to do more for popular government than was the conservative school. 
They looked forward to a continued process of democratic development. The other school looked backward toward the long-tried regime of England, half expecting a return to an order like that of earlier days, when the democratic impulse had spent its force. Notwithstanding the democratic character of the Jeffersonian theory, the program involved in this way was by no means carried out. Even under the democratic regime, there still remained a strictly limited electorate, property qualifications, long terms of office, and little participation of the people in the election of their officers. The government was still in the hands of the freeholders and the gentry. The theory of the Jeffersonians was in many respects in advance upon that of the government party, but its practice was still in many ways aristocratic. The development of democracy was begun by the Jeffersonian democracy, but its full realization was left for another time and another party. End of chapter 4